Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Ahoy, ahoy, all you Waylands and all you Utanis out there. Welcome to another beautiful, amazing episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio. And mine is Sean Hamill. We're here to talk to you, give you some more Xenomorph talk. We're just smack dab in the middle of our alien arc. This episode, we will be discussing the Alien 3 unproduced screenplay comic book miniseries that was released by Dark Horse, the Alien Resurrection movie, and the Alien vs. Predator duology. The two, is it is it a little uh, grandiose to call them a duology? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they a, do tell like it is a it is a concurrence. I mean, con- yeah, it is a story, story that that like has that starts at parts. the beginning of the first movie and ends at the big at the or or does it end yeah. at the end of the second movie? Question mark. It ends more definitively than the first one does. Exactly. Plus, after all that jibba jabba that we'll be spewing out, we'll actually have someone on the show who knows what they're talking about. Sarah Welch Larson, who wrote an amazing book, Becoming Alien. The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise, which is a pretty apt title because every single one of these movies, at least in the in the franchise proper, not including Alien vs. Predator, the Alien vs. Predator movies are similar to themselves. Yes. As a whole, those, the the content, like I guess the themes and the aesthetics of those are different from the, main the line. four movies. Yeah. Yeah, from the four movies in the franchise proper. Uh, so idi- idiosyncratic definitely makes sense. Considering Alien Resurrection, the movie that we'll be discussing, how wildly <laughs> different it is. Idiosyncratic AF. Dude, for real. Um, But yeah, we got a heck of a show this week. Before we jump into it, though, we want to plug our giveaway once again. We are giving away a copy of a book. It's called The Art of Alien Isolation. It's all the artwork or most of the artwork that comes from the Alien Isolation video game, which is a heck of a video game. You can mm-hmm. pick it up pretty cheaply on Steam. Uh, it's available for all like major consoles, your PlayStations and your Xboxes and all that. And it's a lot of fun if you're into survival horror or into the Alien franchise. We'll also be giving away a copy of the Alien RPG starter set from our friends over at Free League. Uh, once again, a fantastic uh, tabletop role-playing game if you're interested in that sort of thing. And if you've been thinking about playing and like if, you're, if you've been interested in, in getting into tabletop role-playing and you're already a fan of the Alien franchise, if, I mean, what a perfect way to, to start, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... Any alien fan should want either of these things. So please, please, please enter. We're just dying to give this stuff away. And it's super easy to enter. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter. We are at Podcast, and then shoot out a tweet with the hashtag Podcast, and your Twitter handle will automatically be entered one entry per Twitter handle and we will draw a winner at the end of the arc, July 31st. It's a very exciting time to be an alien fan. It's a very exciting time to be alive and to be an alien fan. Yes, both of those things. Your grandparents, upon learning this, will talk about how they didn't have this kind of opportunity when they were when they, when they were your age. Yeah, yeah. And They didn't even have science fiction. They just had regular fiction. Regular stupid-ass fiction. Like what? They had science and they had fiction, and it wasn't. And ne'er the two shall meet. And then one day, Isaac Asimov said, "But robots and the future." And someone said, "Sir, what's a robot?" 
And then 50 years from now, you'll be able to regale your children. They're like, man, no one's giving away shit anymore. <laughs> well, what's going on? What? He's like, well, let me tell you about this one time. These two assholes from Texas were giving away all sorts of stuff. <laughs> they really were a couple of assholes. That that should have been the name of our show. But anyway, so let's get started. Let's, let's talk about, Um, let's just dip into the Alien 3 unproduced screenplay. It was written by William Gibson of Neuromancer fame, pretty much the creator of the cyberpunk aesthetic. When I found out that he had written it, I thought that's really cool. That's kind of, you know, what has been going on lately in fandom where IPs will seek out already established writers and sort of ask them to um, bring their particular flavor to the franchise to kind of give it something different, something new. More often than not, those authors are already fans of the IP. And so it makes it that much better. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, a great example would be Shane Black and Iron Man 3. I know a lot of people don't like that movie. It's one of my favorite Marvel movies. And it feels like a Shane Black movie. Like, and that's what I love about it. And it doesn't feel like, it feels enough like a Marvel movie that it is still recognizably a Marvel movie, but it's also just a Shane, you know, it, it, it it's got its author's fingerprints all over it. So, yeah, I, I like that kind of stuff. Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok. Yes. I mean, that that's a IP that was already established. I'd seen by the second movie, it kind of already run out of steam. And then Ragnarok comes in and just shoots it with a bolt of electricity and becomes what's widely considered probably, if if not the best Marvel movie, definitely the funniest yeah, it's it's one of the best. I'd say it's in the top three um, and probably the one that's easiest to, to just rewatch because it's just so, so funny. But this isn't a Thor Ragnarok podcast. We're going to talk about Alien 3, the unproduced screenplay. The basic plot is the like the shuttle bay, the, the rescue shuttle or whatever it is that that Hicks and that Newt and that Bishop and that Ripley are on at the end of Aliens gets picked up. The idea that there's that there's an egg, that there's an ovomorph inside of it remains the same as it as it was in the actual Alien 3 movie. Uh, but at that point, that's where it, it veers drastically. Yeah, um, you read the comic book and I actually did the audio drama. So so we're coming at it. We wanted to we wanted to attack this from all angles. Exactly. Uh, and the audio drama, it's kind of neat because Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen come back to uh, reprise their roles and they are kind of the the leads as far as the continuing characters from Aliens. Um, I, I could be wrong. It's been a while, but I think, do, isn't this where we start to get into like other, uh, not global powers, but I guess galactic powers? Like there's the the People's Republic of China, you know, there, there are different like nation states that have built out into space that are at odds with Wayland yutani is that it? Did that make it into the graphic novel? Well, there's different like fingers in the pie, so to speak. And the the plot pretty much centers on the, I guess, like the lab that everyone is brought to where the, the xenomorph ends up escaping. And Ripley is still like pretty much, she is woken up from cryosleep, freaks out, and then, then is sedated. And then is pretty much MIA the entire, the entire movie or story. Which uh, I assume that I don't know why they did that. I, I guess I it, but my guess would be. I mean, so in the commentary for Aliens on the on the Blu-ray, James Cameron says that he wrote the entire script for Aliens with Ripley, you know, in the script as the hero, um, with under the assumption that they had already signed Sigourney Weaver for a sequel, and they had not. 
so <laughs> they asked him to rewrite it without her because she wanted a bunch of money. And he was like, no. <laughs> so and pay her the money. What's wrong yeah, with you? Yeah. I think she was the first actress to get like a million dollars for that, for, nice. for a role. Yeah. And she got nominated for an Oscar for it. So, you know, good for her. And the preface to the collection, to the comic book collection, William Gibson actually says that he was more, he, sort of skirts the issue he said he was more interested in the bishop character and so that gets amped up a lot more but i think like the subtext is there that just in case sigourney weaver didn't want to show up or didn't want to like show up for the entire movie like that that was their out and obviously i mean that as we saw like the entire movie the entire story changed drastically and so he figured that i'm sure like they wanted to amp her role up they easily could have right yeah he he wrote what he was interested about and it makes sense that he'd be more interested in the android as a you know cyberpunk uh imagine that yeah as weird as it sounds because alien takes place entirely on the nostromos entirely on us on us on, on a spaceship it's confined to this small vessel right and and their brief um foray onto lv426 for sure for sure and then aliens is confined to essentially you know uh to hadley's hope right uh and then alien 3 is confined to this like prison system despite all that those movies seem a lot bigger and this and william gibson's screenplay seems really small yeah yeah i remember actually being kind of disappointed when i listened to the audio drama because like it, like William Gibson, great writer, you know, big alien fan, of course, uh, I am, and he is too. So like, you know, it's treated like this lost artifact of like science fiction, you know, one of those like holy grails. But when you get down to it, it's really actually clearly to me, at least an early draft and one that doesn't, it doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like an episode almost or a bridge. This was his first screenplay. He had never written one. He explains all this in the preface to the to the to the collection. Like I said, that this was he, they reached out to him to write it. He would never written one before, but he said he studied the the previous two screenplays. But I, yeah, I think it might be just a you know not a failure on his part, but just he wasn't used to the to the medium. Yeah, yeah. You know, you as uh, a long form fiction author. If someone were like, and this happened to you recently, someone asked you to write an essay and you kind of struggle with it because you're like, this isn't what I do. Right. You know, it's, I, I can do it, but it's, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked these muscles out in a very yeah. long time. Whereas in Gibson's case, I, he, it doesn't seem like he had ever worked them out. And so we kind of get the, the, the scope, the, the smaller scope as a result of that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't, remember a whole lot of what actually happens after Rip Ripley is sent away and then Newt gets sent away too and it sort of becomes about Hicks and Bishop and a couple of the scientists right yep. just trying to survive I mean I guess that's better than than killing them off but at the same time like I sort of was not nearly as interested in those two the Bishop and Hicks character without the other two characters it's like Ripley and Newt were the heart of aliens, you know, so, so like losing them, I never quite recovered from that. You know, it, it's sort of like how I stopped watching a uh, doctor who after Rose left, because I was just like, I, I can't, it Rose, Rose was doctor who to me. There was one cool thing. I, and I think this is where 
the idea that um so in the actual alien 3 movie ripley gets uh, infected or implanted with a mother egg with a queen egg mm-hmm. and there's you know you posited the theory that you know they when all else fails like they have this they've developed this way to continue the species right and i think that has its origins in his screenplay because they sort of mentioned that at the very beginning that they're able to um you know in the words of jeff goldblum in jurassic park (laughs) life uh life finds a way (laughs) that's my jeff goldblum impersonation for anyone who is looking to hire a a jeff goldblum like voice actor he's available my rates are very competitive (laughs) and my schedule is surprisingly open for the moment it's gonna fill up fast after this yeah, so you know, so email me now yeah. at fandomupodcast at gmail.com. Put Jeff Goldblum in the email uh, title so it, it'll go to the right folder. Exactly. So that's what we have for the, it's like you said, it, it seemed like this sort of like long lost science fiction artifact. And um, I think the the execution, well, like I said, it's not terrible by any means, but um, it's... Uh, it doesn't feel like a movie. No, it doesn't. Like It, like, it feels almost like... We're, and we were discussing this prior to the to the show. It feels almost like uh, a bridge between Aliens and what would be Alien Three. It's like a like a sequel prequel type situation. Like an actual comic book they would put out to promote the next movie that would sort of uh, bridge the two stories, which is you know which is a common marketing tactic now or a novel or something. But uh, exactly. But yeah, I you know the the entire Alien Three writing process was a pretty clusterfuck yeah yeah it was <laughs> i encourage anybody who's interested to check it out on wikipedia and also to just watch the special features on the the dvd or blu-ray if you you can get your hands on them because yeah it was it was it pa- that script passed through so many hands um and there was a writer strike and there were producers arguing and directors arguing and you know sigourney weaver also had a lot of uh, I think this was her first time as a producer on the movie. So like she had a lot of say and had some very specific ideas um, about how the character, you know, should be portrayed. So, and rightfully so. I mean, she brought it to life. She's the the continuity between the three movies, but um, yeah, what you ended up with. And that's how it's amazing that Alien 3 is even watchable, <laughs> I guess. I, yeah, absolutely. And and we discussed it in the sec- in the previous episode, in episode two of the arc. If you want to listen to our opinions on that, definitely check it out. Uh, but just to reiterate, we thought it was it was good. It was you know definitely had its bright spots. Like the third act is as good as you know any any act in an alien movie. Um, but there's some definitely you know like I said, there's it 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 is definitely a product of of you know like you said, so many people have like too many chefs in the kitchen essentially yeah and it, it definitely shows although we had a friend in uh, in a discord tell us that he preferred it to aliens which i didn't know if i i don't know if that person's should. not our friend anymore <laughs> <laughs> but I, I i could definitely see that i mean it's it's definitely there's a you know going back to to the idiosyncratic title that this film franchise has it definitely has a vibe and a look and a feel to it. Mm-hmm. Alien Three does, yeah. and all of that is sort of missing from the unproduced screenplay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's David Fincher's first feature film, and even with all the the problems and trouble that it had, like 
you can see there's somebody very gifted at work, you know, directing the film. And um, even if he has sort of disavowed it, like the work he did there is still, it's, it's so incredibly early nineties in it's look just the same way that um, resurrection is so incredibly late nineties in it's look. I want to talk about that. Yeah, you're right. Let's, let's move on from alien three. I love David Fincher is all. Alien resurrection came out in 1997 and it almost felt like a the same way that Scream was a deconstruction of the slasher genre. It felt like Alien was a deconstruction not only of like the the space monster genre, which Alien essentially started, but it's you know a deconstruction and almost a parody of the franchise itself. Yeah, it's definitely. Um... So Alien Resurrection is directed by Jean-Pierre Genet, who directed Delicatessen, uh, City of Lost Children. And then uh, his next movie after this was Amelie, of all things. So like to kind of give you an idea of where his headspace is, he was an interesting choice to helm an alien movie because his, his movies before Resurrection, City of Lost Children and Delicatessen are very dark, very funny. Uh, very grungy. Uh, City of Lost Children has kind of a grungy Terry Gilliam sci-fi feel to it. So um, I, I, I think it's, I don't know if I want to say an inspired choice, but it is a very interesting choice and it's very in keeping with the uh, franchise's determination to just keep pushing and trying new things, at least in its first four installments. The screenplay was written by one Joss Whedon. Yep early on in his career and sort of it you can definitely see the trappings of what would become like Whedonisms later on yeah you know someone said that it was very much a like it felt like a dry run for what would become Firefly and Serenity 100% you can see the archetypes are already there um the vibe is there it's a little bit darker than what the TV show ends up becoming because the crew of the Betty are actually essentially transporting human cargo to be murdered. <laughs> um, you know, and the, the crew of Firefly probably, or, or, or the crew of Serenity on Firefly probably wouldn't be cool with that. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely like you've, you've got most of the archetypes already in place. Um, it's kind of, it, it is interesting just sort of um, as a, as a precursor. I, I think it works better in Firefly than it does in Resurrection, but um, there there's some highlights. Uh, it, I, I think they're well cast, the crew, for the most part. Ron Perlman is a genre known a writer as Call. Yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of the characters. I, I mean, I thought they did well in their roles, but I didn't think that the roles fit the, the, the film or... Like it seemed like there was sort of like this sort of disconnect between the direct the direction and the writing. I I yeah, and I I think um, Joss Whedon even said exactly that because somebody asked him like, "Oh, did they mess up your script?" And he was like, "No, they filmed my script, but somehow made the exact wrong choice for like every single line, every single you know scene, just played wrong." Like the the director his sensibilities like they're both sort of into the sort of quippy or or humorous but like they're coming at it from very different directions um and i I, it's definitely that disconnect is very much um at play uh in, in the movie i i remember for a long time i 
I remember being really disappointed the first time I saw the movie in the theater. Uh, came out Thanksgiving when we were freshmen in high school, I think. Uh, same year that Starship Troopers came out. And uh, so it was like, I was so pumped. We were going to get two great sci-fi movies at, you know, at the end of the year. And one of them I would consider great. And the other one, I was kind of like, what the hell was that? Um, but it's kind of grown on me over the years. I mean, I, I will cop to pretty much any criticism leveled at it, but maybe because, you know, I know the man himself is problematic, but I still remain a fan of a lot of the work he did or a lot of the stuff he's had his hand in and maybe just sort of being used to that voice, um, helps I don't I don't know I don't know what it is exactly because I enjoyed it more this time than I have ever enjoyed it before um I remember I also just really admiring the sequence in the middle of the movie when they're in the the water and you see the swimming xenomorph and the pool surrounded by eggs and the ladder and it's a pretty extended action sequence that that I think works really well. Um, yeah, that part is great. I like yeah, that part that, a lot. That's where the movie, to me at least, really feels like it it gets going. And of course, that's actually pretty late in the movie. So and that is a problem. I felt like Alien had something to say about, you know, the working class and how they're extraneous to, you know, to corporations and the people who have the money and how and i felt aliens had something to say about the like the military industrial complex and how it's used to essentially you know to solve whatever problem that pops up you know something happens let's send some marines with some guns to take care of it and then alien 3 had something to say about the prison industrial complex and how people are just thrown away regardless of you know the fact that they're human beings yeah and because of what, what they may or may not have done in their past and I don't think Alien Resurrection has too much to say about anything. Like, I think it's just, you know, it's just, you know, like we let's make another Alien movie and let's uh, let's try to make some money from it. I'm trying to I'm trying to think on my feet here and see if I can play devil's advocate. I I, I think you're right. I think there's something interesting going on with. Ripley's transformation, um, particularly the 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 way that the line between humanity and monster gets further blurred, uh, which isn't really necessary, which is sort of in keeping, I guess, with the earlier films, which uh, deal with evil, both systemic and chaotic, um, which uh, Sarah Welch Larson's book gets into. Um, so, uh, you know, we can save that for that conversation, but um, it, I don't know that it all completely works for me, but the fact that it, what it's trying is interesting and the crew of the Betty, you could make an argument. I think it would be a weak argument, but you could make an argument that it's sort of the crew of the Betty sort of being the gig economy, basically having to take terrible work just to get by. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, you, you, you have my interest. <laughs> Go on. Um, you know, you, they're sort of imprisoned by this military industrial complex too. And the only way that they can keep their freedom is essentially by denying it to others, like literally stealing human cargo and selling it um, to the military. Now I don't, that, I, I, that's, it's a little bit of a reach. Uh, I, I, I grant you. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to die on this hill, but um, that's that's the first thing that springs to mind if I'm trying to sort of fit it into that anti-capitalism uh, 
mold and the, the satire of it too. Like there's some nods to it, like them watching the shopping channel and Ron Perlman going like, this is a great fucking show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, the fact that paper money is uh, hard to come by, you know, they actually get paid in cash, I think. I believe so. So yeah, they're, they're, there's something there. There, there's, there's a lot going on in the movie. Um, I'd say there's more going on in this movie than is going on in Alien 3, which is a lot more single-minded, especially in its theatrical version. It's kind of a straight narrative, uh, whereas this one's trying to be more of an ensemble, kind of like Aliens was, even more so, actually, because you've got more point-of-view characters. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, so much so that Ripley sort of ends up, again, like in the theatrical version of or the extended cut of Alien 3, Ripley ends up sort of feeling like a supporting character because you spend so much time with the, you know, the 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 chimney sweep inmates, um, you know, especially in the second act. And in this movie, like she's she's definitely the outsider. Like it's not the movie's not really from her point of view for the most part. Like she's sort of a part. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And much like with Alien 3, I think that the parts of the movie where Ripley is at the forefront are the most interesting and the most engaging i thought you know it continues the theme or like the idea of like of motherhood and what that means when the queen mother at the end of the movie like gives birth in a traditional human way to um they clone ripley from a blood sample they collected from purina 161 and because she was already implanted with the alien egg that is also a part of the cloned body that they create. And uh, Alien Resurrection starts off with them cutting the body open and removing the chest burster manually. And uh, they allude that this was the first successful attempt. Yep. And they keep the, the body alive, the host alive, because you know, it, it's, in, it's in viable condition. And they refer to her as Ellen 8, or as Ripley 8. Ripley 8, right. She's got an 8 tattooed on her forearm. And then later on in the movie, you see the other Ripley's one through seven, I'm assuming. And they are like, like grotesque, like, you know, abominations of, of, of creation. And I think that's a really good scene too. Again, but, that's a fantastic scene. Yeah. Where she sees seven and it begs for death and she just like flames the, the whole room, just burns it all down. Also part of the storyline is that because she had the chest burster inside of her, I guess it, I, it would be for anyone who would survive the process although like most have not she like her her dna and the aliens dna the xenomorphs dna sort of meld and so she has like super strength quick reflexes and her blood is now slightly acidic yeah and she's got permanent like fingernails like green greenish like weird like talons likewise that the alien that the queen mother gives birth to has the reason that she gives birth in a traditional human sense is because her DNA has mingled with Ripley's and, and this alien that she gives birth to is, has like eyeballs. Yeah. Oh, it has an almost human skull. Like it's like, like human eye sockets and everything yeah, it, like it's the first xenomorph with eyes yeah it, it it very much looks like a half human half xenomorph hybrid and it recognizes ripley eight as its mother and in fact kills the queen mother xenomorph slaps her head right off <laughs> and then is uh 
And Ripley is forced to essentially kill her child. So she loses. So this is, and she, and she's pretty distraught at it because like she can't remember Newt. She knows that there's something there. She knows that she lost somebody. And if she can remember Newt, I can't imagine that she doesn't remember Amanda. And so for the, yeah, essentially for the third time in her life, she loses a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, and it it's the strangest and hardest to relate to of the three because it's so alien to us. And Ripley has become so alien to us at this point. Like, um, I that it's sort of it's more grotesque than it is moving. You know, or at least to me, it was. I I was actually more moved by it. I think that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> I. I guess because the thing was so scary and upsetting to look at, like it was hard to feel bad that it was gone. Uh, well, I, <laughs> see, I, I looked at it. I thought that it was despite all that, you know, even though it was like very horrible to look at and dangerous and an abomination of sorts, you know, there's, there's still a bond there and, and yeah. having to make that choice to, to kill it. You know, it's obviously difficult for Ripley. The movie ends with them getting to Earth, which earlier in the film, Ron Perlman's character had described as a real shithole. <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing they're, I mean, they're either in Vegas or in Paris because there's a destroyed Eiffel Tower. And so I guess we have that to look forward to in the next 350 years. The Eiffel Tower will be destroyed. Huzzah. For all of you Eiffel Tower haters out there, the time is <laughs> a coming. you something to look forward to. <laughs> Um, it's an interesting movie. I like a lot of the actors in it. I, I used to hate how goofy it was compared to the other three when I was younger, because tonally it felt so off, but maybe I've come to terms with that as I've gotten older and I'm just like, ah, oh, fuck it. It's weird. It's the weird kid in the family. <laughs> like, you know, the, the military is played more for laughs than as a dangerous organization. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not sorry that we never got a sequel to it. I think it took the franchise in a weird direction that would be hard to come back from. I can see why they decided to go back and do prequels instead. Um, I don't really see a path forward after Resurrection. I mean, I'm sure somebody's got one, but I, I don't know what it well, is. Well, James Cameron had one, in fact. Oh, did he? There was work on uh, Alien 5, essentially. James Cameron was working on it, and Sigourney Weaver had actually said that if the story's interesting and good enough, that she'd be on to continue to reprise her role as Ellen Ripley. And then Fox went and made Alien vs. Predator, and James Cameron's like, ah, you know what? All right, I'm I'm out. And he apparently he even liked Alien vs. Predator. He enjoyed it, but still like thought that, you know, kind of. It like sort of gave up the ghost on on the franchise. Yeah, yeah. Once you start, I mean, you see it in the old Universal um, horror movies. Once they start mashing them up together, uh, that's usually a sign they're running out of ideas for the individual monster. Even if the fans are very excited about the idea, it's usually not a great uh, sign. So, uh, but can you imagine James Cameron, who at that point had directed? The biggest movie ever made, Titanic, has agreed to come back to one of his two signature franchises to course correct. And you're like, nah, we're going to do the versus movie instead with the guy who made Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil. <laughs> um, that's 
It's bonkers, right? That is this crazy decision. As much as I enjoy the the alien versus predator duology, it's absolutely bonkers. You want to talk about Holy Grail? I want to see that movie. So let's. That's a great segue to Alien versus Predator. Like you said, it was directed by Paul W. S. Anderson, and I had forgotten that when I started watching it. Show favorite. And yeah, he's our he's our favorite son, and or our favorite uncle. I guess it was. I guess it would be. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten that he had directed it and wasn't reminded until the until the movie ended and like, directed by Paul. And I was like, oh fucking of course, <laughs> this has all the trappings of a Paul W. S. Anderson movie. It's got, I'm, and it's based on the Dark Horse comic book series, right? Which you've read, right? Well, it, so it's the the Dark Horse comic book is actually set in the far future. It's actually in the same time frame as the Alien films. Um, so it's it's interesting that they've gone that they and maybe for budgetary reasons or whatever that they decided to set it in what was then the present day of two thousand four. Um, but it does have it does have a lot of similar things like in the comic series, which was also turned into a really good novel called Aliens versus Predator Prey, which is available for anybody who's interested. Um, takes place on this colony like farming world where the predators um, show up basically to hunt xenomorphs. Like they're young warriors who are there to basically earn their their whatever you know their manhood or their stripes their yeah. stripes yeah they're not there to hunt humans they don't know that humans have come to that world so they impregnate you know all these like cattle essentially with uh xenomorphs and then those things break out but um there's one of the predators is kind of a punk and realizes that there are people living here and decides like because man you know is the ultimate prey to that species um he's going to go start hunting humans instead. And like the, the chaperone for the trip basically ends up teaming up with the woman in charge of the colony to try and fight off not only the other predators, but also this insane xenomorph invasion that's completely tearing the colony apart. And um, so like there, there are a lot of parallels with, um, you know, the, the, the woman, the, the team up at the end, the earning of respect, like the, the, the predator is actually, you know, giving her the weapon and walking away. So, like, it takes a lot of its um, broad cues from from uh, that comic book series, but but does its own thing with it, which I thought was pretty neat. Okay, cool. So that's the one thing I was wondering is exactly what was from the comic book and what was, you know, essentially like the the movie production. And it kind of goes into my theory that this is a picture perfect Paul W S Anderson movie, like very basic archetypes like the like the ancient astronaut idea is prevalent yep which is on the surface is fine but when you dig into it is more problematic because it minimizes ancient you know non-white cultures like there's no way that cultures in africa could have built these pyramids without the help of aliens you know which isn't again like sort of going back to when we were discussing aliens and some of the you know, possibly problematic themes in that movie. You know, you know, it's not to say that Paul W. S. Anderson, you know, believes these things. It's just like he's like it's, it's a trope. For him, it's very surface level. Yeah, it's a trope, and he's not thinking too hard about it. Like he's like in interviews, he stated that he's a populist filmmaker. He just wants to make these fun movies that you can go and watch and enjoy, 
and you know he's not trying to make art and i almost want i almost give him a pass for this because like it's not his intention and even though you know some people say that impact is is means more than intention i don't like it, to me like i said having watched so many of his movies like it's not that crucial for 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 anderson he's like he's kind of a basic ass dude right i i wrote an article the other day that was basically um talking about god i can't remember the terms now but basically about two different ways of reading a text and one is basically where you problematize it where you look at it and see what's wrong with it and then there's one that's uh i think it was called reparative uh, a reparative reading where you're like okay, what here still works? What here still speaks to us? What can still nourish the soul? What is, you know, timeless? Um, and both, both are valid, but, uh, you know, that, that definitely, and as a white guy, you know, I, I would never tell anyone how to read any text, but um, I'd say that the problematizing thing is definitely more the dominant mode of criticism right now. And probably rightfully so, because we have a lot of unexamined assumptions, you know, in our culture that need to, you know, some rocks that need to be turned over. For sure. Um, but, but I would say in this case, like, the same as with aliens, there is no harm intended. And what's interesting about this movie and the ancient astronaut thing is Prometheus in, in a lot of ways, Prometheus is a stealth remake of this movie in some ways, because it's also about ancient astronauts and a Wayland expedition. Uh, there's even a briefing scene on the ship. That's a lot like the briefing scene on the ship of, in the Prometheus at the beginning, uh, a Wayland dies at the hands of an alien monster at the end, like played by Lance Henry. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's, I thought that was a pretty cool nod. Yeah. I, I, I also liked that Wayland wasn't a complete shit. Like he was ambitious. He was a little cold, but like he actually died trying to save his friends or his coworkers. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's pretty funny. Like he delivers like this great like one liner, like badass one liner, and then immediately dies, gets killed. <laughs> like three seconds goes later, goes out so pathetically. Um, and which is, I mean, again, like just it's sort of like a, a Paul W S Anderson ism, like this, like. We want to like hit these notes. Like he's got to have a badass one-liner, but then like it doesn't matter because he 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 dies in three three seconds. But I guess in his mind, like he still delivered the line, so you can check that off. Right, right. They, he still got his big moment as Lance Henriksen in Aliens versus Predator. So you can see the similarities between the first Resident Evil movie and Alien versus Predator. They're both take place in subterranean puzzle places like you know where they're constantly yeah, moving sure. walls okay. um uh there's a guy who uh you know gets caught in a laser net uh in resident evil and that same actor gets caught in a predator net in this one and almost gets squished by it but he gets stabbed instead um but there's also uh paul ws anderson really loves to do that thing where you see the computer readout of a place and then zoom into it and then you're with the actors and they do that move several times in alien versus predator uh like he brought his whole tool bag from the resident evil set <laughs> to this set like he just walked right over um from new line to, to 20th century fox and was like all, all that's missing is Mila jovovich and that's because she was shooting um was it afterlife is that what was Apocalypse? That came out the I mean, same year. I think she, uh, yeah, if he could have shoehorned her into the movie, I think he would have. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that they, um, <laughs> that both movies are prequels to Alien and they have these sort of common um, 
uh, themes and ideas running through them, although they attack them, you know, Ridley Scott starts with, I think they find the, the cave drawing somewhere in Europe. So it's got a different flavor than an ancient Aztec temple under an Alaskan, you know, fishing village or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and Anderson is playing it more for the Indiana Jones of it, whereas Scott, you know, obviously is into the bigger thematic concerns. He is actually thinking on some level about what, he's saying beyond what he's showing, I guess. Uh, but anyway, I, I wanted to make sure that we got that out before the discussion got too far. Well, at, at, at one point, one of the predators gets a face hugger mm-hmm. strapped onto his, his face and he shows up later, but he seems fine. He ends up dying later on, you know, dying in, in the climax of the movie. He's the, the hero predator who teams up with Alexa, right? Exactly. Yeah. And a camouflaged alien or i'm sorry a camouflaged predator spaceship shows up at the very end and to retrieve his body i guess the predator elder general yeah he's got a cool like masters of the universe cape (laughs) yeah you know he's in charge because he's got like the velvet cape i love that cape it looks exactly (laughs) like what dolph lundgren wears in masters of the universe and he sees um the actress you know he sees the character with the that's been branded as a, as a warrior yeah and so he leaves her be and he gives her a weapon and he gives her gives her a weapon yeah. and, and they, they burn off and the movie ends with the aforementioned face hugger having uh you know implanted its egg into the predator chest bursting creating a pred alien right now before we go on to requiem i did want to point out um one other thing that i thought was a couple of things that I thought were interesting about this movie. One, this is the first alien movie to have a woman of color as the lead um, with Sana Lathan as Alexa Woods, um, which I thought was sort of interesting. Also, um, we get a better look at some of the alien anatomy in this movie than we ever get before or after. Like there are some slow-mo shots of the face hugger where you get a real good look at it sticking its little, you know, proboscis out at you know, people like, no, I, I noticed that too, that that's a, kind of the first time we see exactly like the mechanics of how that process works. Yeah. I, I thought that was neat. And also like you actually see like these things cut up the xenomorph actually cut apart. So you get to look at what its insides are. Like they're very green, uh, a lot more green than I would have expected. Um, but also like you, you, you know, the, the predator actually turns the skull of a xenomorph into a weapon for Alexa towards the end. I thought that was actually pretty badass. I completely yeah. forgot about that. He breaks off a piece of the tail, like ties it to like a, to a, to a bow staff, to like a, a piece of wood so she can use that as like sort of a spear and then like hollows out a xenomorph skull and turns that into a shield. And he explains it to her by like getting some of her, getting some of the xenomorph's blood like pouring it on the floor, showing her like, hey, this is acid, and then pouring it on the xenomorph itself and it not doing anything. And she realizes like what he's trying to tell her. And so now, yeah, she's she's strapped and ready to go. The other thing I wanted to mention is the predators in this movie look, I don't think they look particularly good. I think this is the worst the predator has ever looked. They all look very uniform. They all look like they're played by pro wrestlers. You know, they're very, they're very like, bulky. They're very stocky. Yeah, yeah. They look more like... um like pro wrestlers, you know, like Jeep Swanson as Bane and Batman and Robin, um, which it, I don't know. It's, it, it's less, I usually the, the character, and I would say even in uh, Requiem look, you know, as little as you can see, cause that movie so damn dark looks better. Uh, 
but you know that's that's a minor quibble. I it's a fun movie. Um, I would rather have the James Cameron Alien Five, but I don't begrudge this movie its existence. I always have a good time watching it. It's fun. You know, it's it's as fun as any Paul W S Anderson movie is like that. And so going into Requiem, you know, it's directed by the brother Strauss, a couple of brothers who had never directed a movie before. And in fact, like owned a special effects company. The the brothers Strauss, yeah, they went on to um, to make Skyline as well, which came out in 2010. Um, so they kind of went at it backwards, starting with the, or almost like Roger Corman in a way, where you've got like your special effects factory and you're using that to generate movies rather than being contractors for studios. This movie felt like. It was. It felt exactly like what it was. It felt like two people who have watched movies, but don't know how to make movies, making a movie. Go on. Because it hit every single, like cliche and trope, mm-hmm. and even like camera shot. Like there's like like there's a shot of O'Brien, the the female soldier character, you know, coming back home, and that sort of like kind of shot of her just like sort of like getting out of the cab and smiling as she looks on, on her house like everything just <laughs> everything just seems very very cliche and very very stock very stock you know like i said and uh but that i st- it was still a lot of dumb fun you know and and it feels like like prometheus is on one end of the spectrum and <laughs> alien versus predator requiem is on the other end the exact other end, the far end. And so you have like this movie that's just fucking chock full of ideas, like just so many ideas and so many ideas that half of them don't even get resolved. And just like, well, what about this? And what do you think about that? And what if this happened? Like that's Prometheus. Like, and and then on the other end, you have Alien versus Predator Requiem. We're like, fuck it, man. Let's just have them fight in the middle of Colorado and Let's just see these motherfuckers just go at it. And isn't that cool? They both look so cool. And they've got these <laughs> weapons and these tails. And one of them's a mixture of two of them. And it looks like a xenomorph with a predator head. And just like the very like cool aesthetic aspect of it. I was on the other side. And that's, you know, in the in, in right in the middle is where you get alien and aliens. You know, it's a right. perfect combination. Those two movies are perfect combinations of the two, like the ideas and like the horror, the and, like, just like the, yeah. the action and the and just you know the the visceral look of it right and you know you know the other movies fall you know somewhere else on this on the spectrum but yeah this you know this is just this is the franchise completely void of having to think of any ideas and it's just a lot of you you just turn your mind off and enjoy it It it's a lot of fun you know what's it's interesting because it does do a couple of things that no other alien movie has done uh, that I I think one is it has a kid getting face hugged like in the first five minutes. That shit was brutal. <laughs> and that, that's one thing I appreciate about it. Like it wasn't afraid to go there. Yeah, it I mean, and then the predator in there with the babies when it when it goes to the the pred alien goes up to the pregnant woman and like and dude just starts implanting her with eggs. Yeah. When she's in labor that the movie was not afraid, as you said, to go there like it's just willing to go dark. So I like, I loved the creature work. I wish that the film, I had my TV set to vivid and I have a pretty good TV. Like it's, it's not like, you know, 
Magnolia Home Theater, but like as far as TVs go, like it's a very good TV and I can barely see shit in some of these scenes. And I wonder if that's by design to like hide the cheapness of the production or I I looked it up and apparently that there was issues with the lighting and they because of that they and they they couldn't they didn't want to reset everything or wait for for better lighting or whatever it may be. They figured that they could just fix it in post and obviously they couldn't. <laughs> No, they could not. Um, like, and it's really frustrating because there are some scenes, like, especially you know when they're in the dark, um, like the predator and alien fighting at the power station, or the scene in the sewer when the predator's using his blue evidence be gone goop, you know, uh, or or the is that from is that in other predator movies? If it is, I don't remember it. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, and that poor woman, like. Her husband and son, like you said, they get face hugged and they die. They get chest bursted, and yep. you know, the, and and she's they're missing. She's looking for them. She's never gonna find them. I mean, I guess by the end of the movie, when they fucking nuke the entire city, her problems are over. I like how dark it was. You know, I was also thinking it's sort of like an Amblin, you know, eighties like Spielbergian take on the alien, you know, monster movie. Um, small town you know all the stock cliche characters the you know the 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 boy from the wrong side of town who's in love with the rich girl the rich girl's asshole boyfriend you know um the 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 older brother who's got a dark past but a good heart you know um the and, uh the fred armison lookalike character <laughs> right, that runs is playing the, the sheriff <laughs> that runs the, runs the whole damn town he owns that town. seriously i couldn't get over the fact that he looked like that actor looks like a snl character that fred armison would have played kind of does and it's it's like a slasher movie version of alien essentially like much more so than alien is because like it, it's trading in stock characters people are just pe- characters who i didn't think would die died like the girl the girlfriend like the rich girl jesse like she eats it like hardcore by accident yeah like in there's like a hallway fight between a predator and a couple of xenomorphs and the predator sh- like throws his like his ninja star to throw a yeah, ninja star looking thing and the xenomorph you know jukes and she ends up getting it like as she's like passing through like passing by and she's like just impaled onto the wall and, and dead kid, immediately and the kid is like jesse is just i that i Empties i the laugh clip. I laugh. Yeah. And he's like, I, I fucking loved her, you assholes. <laughs> I laughed hysterically. And like, oh, man, like I, I had a lot of fun watching this movie and I, I, I will make no apologies for it. People always say, like, oh, what's your guilty pleasure? Don't feel guilty about liking anything. Like I was just having as long as it's not hurting anybody. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, as far as like if, if you like a movie or, right, or right. A, uh, an album or a TV show, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, people say like oh like you know this movie is my guilty pleasure or this this album is my guilty pleasure like why the fuck do you feel guilty about it like i had a i was having a conversation with someone on twitter about the resident evil community and how because she likes certain aspects of it she's not a real fan and i was like i don't like for some reason the internet makes it to where people feel the need to devote as as much energy to the things they dislike as they do to the things that they like. Right. And that's just baffling to me. Like if I was like, if I don't like something, I'm just going to move on. Like, Hey, I didn't like that. And if you like it, cool. Like, there, you know, there's right. plenty of stuff for me to like and to discuss. I don't have to spend <laughs> any of my time talking about stuff I don't like. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I wonder how much of that is um, just maturity because I I can remember when I was younger getting a lot angrier if somebody didn't like something I liked, like feeling like viscerally defensive of a movie like Unbreakable when people were like, "Nah, man, I didn't like that movie," and I'm like, "What the fuck did you just say?" Yeah, there's most there's an emotional maturity thing to it because I feel like by them saying that you feel as if they're telling you you're wrong. Right, because you loving that thing, it feels like a reflection on you. I think that's why people get so invested in the Oscars and who wins. It's like, you didn't make the movie. The movie you like already exists. It will always exist. You can watch it forever. What does it matter if the people who made it got a little statue or not? Like, you don't benefit from that in any way, except I guess you're right, you know, by liking it more and it being the better, you know, it's that, that sort of thing. It's like, I don't know, I guess it's not that different from rooting in for sports teams, but I'm not a sports guy. So I can't really speak to that per se. It's a little different because at the end of the day, there's a very definitive and concrete, you know, measurement of winning and losing in sports. Obviously like, you know, if, if your team scored less points than the other team, your team lost. Right. Whereas, you know, if someone doesn't think this anime is any good, you know, there's no way to objectively argue that. Fair. Yeah. And so, yeah. It, and hopefully the people who are arguing about this stuff are the same age that I was, you know, like 18, 19. And as you get older, hopefully that goes away. My guess is for some people, it doesn't, that there are guys our age. You know what? I know for a fact there are guys our age. You can see their YouTube channels. <laughs> like <laughs> like the dude who fucking flipped his shit when Parasite won over Joker for Best Picture, <laughs> like went on a two-hour tirade. Um, I didn't watch it because, you know, I I like myself. Um, I mean, yeah, like... First of all, I, I mean, I didn't watch the, the 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 tirade. I should say. No, yeah, first, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't either. But just the fact that you know you would devote two hours of your life to to being angry over something that has no discernible impact on your life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that doesn't, yeah, it does not affect you at all, except like you like something better than something else, and. It's Somebody baffling. else. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it, it, and I think that the fact that like it's so hard for us to wrap our mind around like it shows that we're so we're emotionally mature and great people. Yeah. So ladies, well, you're taken. <laughs> I'm spoken for because I am so <laughs> well, great... I'm so put together. <laughs> I was snapped off the market. Yeah, so guilty pleasures for me, like, is something that I realized is is it's not in my wheelhouse. It's something. It's a the term that I don't agree with. You know, if you like a movie, if you like a TV show, if you like an album, whatever it may be, if you like it, you know, enjoy it. Don't let anyone make you feel bad for it. Yeah, it's a leftover from a Puritan way of thinking that uh, that's time has definitely passed. That it's not immoral to like Alien versus Predator Requiem. Well, just, I mean, the, like I said, it's a movie that's completely devoid of nuance, nuance and, and just sort of like artistic touch. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's art and it's, it's a low art. It's, it's art in its own way, but you know, like I said, it's, it's on the opposite spectrum of something like Prometheus, which is like you said in the first episode of our arc is like one of the most beautiful films you've ever seen. It's yeah. like the, like the cinematography and the look of it is just so breathtaking and grand in scope. And it deals with these ideas, like these, 
existential ideas of like where where, like, where we came from what what is our purpose what are we meant to do and none of that exists <laughs> in alien versus predator requiem but it i i still had as much fun like it it worked out different parts of my brain there are some parts of my brain where some, i want to watch a movie that that engages me and and makes me you know and, and poses these ideas that make me think and make me want to like call you up or text you and and get into conversations about it and then there are some times where i want to watch a movie and just be like holy shit that fucking face hooker got the kid that's so crazy i've never seen that before right. like oh she fucking ate that throwing star she's stuck to the wall that's oh so my badass. god three chest bursters yeah like i uh, like the fucking the woman's belly ripped open yeah um the creature work in the movie is fantastic it's really good i did want to ask um before we leave alien versus predator behind for for good i oh this is i mean just to just to give you an idea there is an alien versus predator versus terminator dark horse miniseries that i am going to get my hands on and read (laughs) i would like to read that uh when i move home in a few months um uh, do you think so what's interesting about the Predator timeline and the Alien timeline is that Alien, the Alien versus Predator movies fit into the Predator timeline just fine, I think. They don't fit into the Alien timeline quite so cleanly. What my question is, is can you see a way that it all fits? I mean, they, they, they can. They can, they can definitely like retcon stuff and make these movies fit into the, the canon universe. But as of right now, they're... And I don't think they were ever considered canon. I think they're just, you know, one-offs sort of like, hey, like there's this there's this pretty popular, you know, comic book series. You know, it's teams up to recognizable IPs. Let's make the movie and try to profit. Alien versus Predator Requiem has a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. Fuck. That is how badly it was received. And... I had so much fun watching it. It's in it's in good company, you know, with the Resident Evil movies, which all have pretty low Rotten Tomatoes scores as well. Well, that's that pretty much wraps it up for our uh, alien, our non-canon alien discussion. And I I, I am in keeping with uh, the that the, the the idea that Alien Resurrection is going to get retconned out of con, you know is 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 going to get kicked out of continuity. Yeah, there are only uh, two works that have taken place after it, uh, one of which was one of the Dark Horse novels. I think it might have been called Original Sin as the sequel to Alien Resurrection, and that has all been wiped away. And one of the recent Titan novels, uh, Sea of Sorrows, actually takes place like a couple decades after Resurrection and addresses none of it like at all like the earth in that book does not resemble the earth you're you know that you see in resurrection um Waylon yutani is still a company in that book um you know so there, there there's a lot there that uh to suggest that resurrection is being kind of quietly moved to the side so so my suspicions i want to say have been confirmed <laughs> I mean, they haven't. Yeah, they. There's nothing to refute. You. It lifts right out. It does. It lifts right it out. It does. And it, you know, it's. I didn't enjoy it as much as the other three movies. Um, 
I don't know, maybe maybe it'll grow on me in time. It's just so, like you said, it's so tonally different than the previous way. It's goofy. I think you described it as goofy earlier in the episode, and that's that's perfect way to describe it. It's 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 very goofy with some moments of you know uh, real uh, pathos and and I think that's when it works best. But beyond that, it's it's sort of a miss for me. It's a whiff. Yeah, it's I would call it an interesting misfire. Um, you know, which that's fine. I'll, I'll, I, I, I'm right there with you. I, 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 I like it more than you, but I've also watched it a lot more than you have. Um, so yeah, alien resurrection. Goodbye. Yeah. Like, so yeah, that wraps up our, our non-canon discussion. So we're going straight from alien versus predator requiem which is a movie with no thoughts in its head to a very very uh thought-filled book uh and author here this is exactly the sort of conversation that i like hope to cultivate with this podcast is like digging into the ideas and the subtext of these films and and really figuring out like you know what or, or video games or whatever it is we're discussing, like figuring out what these works are trying to say and you, do they succeed? But yeah, we've, we've got Sarah Welch Larson coming up and uh, we hope you enjoy it. We are sitting here with Sarah Welch Larson, the author of Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to keep talking about the alien movies. That's literally what we've been doing for like the past month or so. Yeah, that's been our summer so far. That's an ideal summer, honestly. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. I, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, I heard about your book from a friend of a friend. I, I feel like it's another pop culture theology uh, devotee kind of, uh, I think he was reading an arc of it and mentioned it. And um, was it J.R. Foresteros by any chance? I want to say yes. Probably. Yeah. He blurbs the book as well. So good friend. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it looked um, and this was even before we started doing the podcast, but I'm a huge alien fan. So as soon as I saw it, I was like, that sounds like the most interesting book ever written. So I pre-ordered it. Thank you. And then for- <laughs> Thank you for writing it. And then I forgot about it uh, after I pre-ordered it. And then it just showed up in the mail one day. So that was a, that was a fun day. Um, yeah. I-, I love it when that happens. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. It's like a, like a gift from your past self or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I figured we, I guess we could start with just um, the elevator pitch for Becoming Aliens. Yeah, it's a feminist theological examination of all six alien movies. Um, it's just a couple of, of lenses that I really like uh, to think about just around pop culture in general, but it really felt like a good fit with these particular movies as well, just because they're there's there's a lot going on there. It's more than than just people being chased down hallways by monsters, um, even though that's what it appears to be on the surface. Right. It it most of the movies function at that level, but there's more going on, mm-hmm. um, which is part of what makes them so juicy and interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a franchise full of ideas that yes. um, are often subtextual. Uh, you know, Prometheus kind of puts all that to the forefront. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but in the movies before that, it's, you know, there's just under the surface, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And like we discussed, uh, you said it's, you know, looking at it through a, through a feminist lens and through a theological lens. And we discussed this in a, in a couple of episodes prior that just because someone doesn't see it that way doesn't mean that 
one can't or an and or that it's not there mm -hmm. and that's really what intrigues me or what intrigued me about your book i mean obviously there's the the character of ripley mm -hmm. and how she shines through and evolves through the series um but i didn't uh, and it's not up until Prometheus, I didn't see the theological aspect or I didn't uh, notice that yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's definitely, like you said, it's, it's definitely subtext for the first couple for sure. And then it, I feel like alien three is where it really starts to get overt, I think. Um, but at the same time, like you can completely ignore the religious aspects of the story and it can still be like a good and interesting story too, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well I was going to say, well, I mean, let's go ahead and uh, let's start at the beginning. What, you know, what, what is your history with the Alien franchise? Like, how did you, what's the first time you watched, which, what's the first movie you watched and when was it? Um, so I think it was Aliens. I'm reasonably sure it was Aliens and it was just on TNT um, at home, like one afternoon. And uh, I think I first came in when Ripley is uh, going through the inquest with the Wayland yutani folks and they're asking her like what happened to the Nostromo and she she's like my crew all got murdered and it was because of you guys um, and I had never really seen a story like that before where there was a woman in a science fiction setting who was being taken seriously by the movie even though she wasn't being taken seriously by the characters around her um, so not too long after that I ended up watching Alien for the first time, knowing that Ripley was going to survive, but knowing literally almost nothing else about the story. Like I was aware of the chestburster scene because of cultural osmosis, um, but I didn't know that Ash was an android, uh, which was a hell of a surprise. <laughs> nice. um, and I was a big Lord of the Rings fan at the time as well. So like, I'd never was able to look at Ian Holm quite the same way again. <laughs> so I saw Alien, like I'm, it must've been like 10, 11 PM at night. I was like 16, 17 years old alone in like a dark living room which is probably the ideal way to watch it for the first time and I was like flipping on lights around the house <laughs> as I was going to bed afterwards um and then I went back and I watched Aliens in its entirety not too long after that um and then just kind of let it rest for a little bit um tried watching the rest of the quadrilogy later on it must have been like junior year of college or so so a few years after that um, didn't really love Alien 3 that first time that I saw it. And then uh, I hit a gross out death scene in Alien Resurrection fairly early on. It's the moment where General Perez like gets bit in the back of the head. And then like, I kept thinking that the movie was going to cut away and it didn't cut away and it didn't cut away. And then I was like, nope, absolutely not. I am done with these movies. Um, and then I just sort of forgot about them for a few years. Um, but when I went to grad school, the very first text that they had us engage with was alien like they hosted a screening the very first night that we were all at our program and then the next day there was a lecture about alien through a marxist lens um which was fascinating and i hadn't really known I can, that uh, yeah. yeah i can definitely see that for sure oh yeah like there's a lot of really good like class warfare and there's a lot of like really interesting stuff that's going on in there um, and the professor who did the lecture just loves science fiction in general. So I ended up taking a 70s sci-fi feminist class from her later on that year, which was awesome. Um, and that kind of shifted me from thinking like, oh, sci-fi is just something that I enjoy to, oh, sci-fi is something that you can take seriously. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I didn't love Prometheus when it came out, but when Alien Covenant came out, I went to go see it twice in the theater because I loved it so much. Um, and that also retroactively made me appreciate Prometheus a little bit more. So like, these are movies that I've been 
kind of aware of for almost as long as I can remember, or at least like I've cared about them on some level for as long as I can remember, but to varying degrees, um, at least until this book came along and uh, changed everything. And now all I can think about at this point is just the alien universe. Well, I'm going to say, speaking of the book, I mean, like that's how, how did it come about? Um, it started the way all good things do, which is with a really dumb tweet. So, <laughs> you know, those Twitter prompts that go around and um, people will ask, like, if, if you could talk about something for 20 minutes unprompted, like, what would you talk about? I answered that prompt with religion and science fiction. And then the man, um, Elijah Davidson, who would go on to become my editor for this book, actually took me seriously and said, no, really pitch me something. I'd like to hear what you'd like to write about. So I said, OK, nice. cool. Alien and evil. Let's let's talk about that. Um and it was an interesting process because some of it I knew, like I already knew that I wanted to talk about the entire series and not just cherry pick the movies necessarily. I did know that I only wanted to deal with the movies because uh, diving into the comic books was really intimidating. <laughs> There's a lot of those out quite there. A bit, yeah, we, yeah. yeah I, I did do that, and that that is uh, that is a lot, and it it it's a lot. Yeah, I, I I feel like your approach is probably the better one. <laughs> At least a streamlined one. But at the same time, like, I do know that I want to get into the comic books. So if you have any recommendations, I will gladly take them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, I was reading about alien and evil. And I was kind of thinking about like doing it from like a theodicy approach, like the the idea of like, can there be a kind and loving God in a universe where evil exists? And my editor very wisely told me, like, don't deal with this. The movies themselves are kind of agnostic <laughs> about um, the concept of a God in general, not just like a loving one. So um, we ended up steering away from that and just dealing with the problem of like just evil and like how the movies um, conceive of them. So the other problem with that is one, the movies are kind of agnostic. So the theodicy approach wasn't going to work. And two, I am not a theologian myself. Um, fortunately, I am married to a man who has an MDiv <laughs> and uh, my husband actually recommends a lot of really good theology to me whenever I'm like wrestling with any particular problems. Like I'll say, I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z and he'll say, oh, you should probably read these theologians. Um, and uh, he really likes feminist and womanist theology. So he ended up recommending a couple of books, um, Karen Baker Fletcher and then um, Catherine Keller, of course. And as soon as I started reading Catherine Keller's book, Face of the Deep, um, everything just sort of clicked into place because she's dealing so much in this imagery of like watery depths and of the idea of creation kind of coming out of the void and being like a source of both fright and of possibility. Um, and then a lot of the implications that come along with that. And uh, it just seemed like a really natural fit for the alien movies, which is why I decided to look at them through the lens of her work and I like to think that I think it worked out fairly well. Yeah, it's an incredibly convincing um, book that I, I think that that was in my the the compliments I accidentally sent along with my questions <laughs> ahead of the show. I think I did mention just how um, it's so it's a very cohesive look at the films that makes them makes a really strong case for them as a whole, rather than as sort of disparate entries in a you know, sort of flailing uh, franchise, which, you know, I, I'd always enjoyed how different the movies were from each other, especially the first four, but um, you still managed to kind of use Keller's work to, to kind of put it all in one package. And I was in a very slim package that doesn't feel like it's skimping on anything either. So it's a uh, very 
it's a great book. I, Thank you. <laughs> beautifully written. I really enjoyed the book. It was, you know, I've obviously like I've read my my fair share of academic and scholarly essays and stuff, and this was very accessible, and I really enjoyed it. And and going back to Sean's point that you know each and kind of the, the title is you're talking about how it's the most idiosyncratic film franchise. Each film has its own sort of look and aesthetic and feel to it, but. Yeah, it wasn't until I read your book that like the overall thematic uh, idea of of evil and and personhood really came into really came into focus for me. Oh, and I hadn't really considered it. Like, there's a line um, toward the end of the book: the androids are the key to in, to the entire Alien series. Mm-hmm. And when I read it, I was like, of course. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why hadn't I seen this before? And just sort of like what each android represents in its own movie and and another thing that i hadn't really considered is and i'm not sure if you intended this but the xenomorph as sort of this um anthropomorphic or personified uh personification of the corporation of like of the corporate exploitation of of the crew mm-hmm. like this is like you you were saying that the xenomorph dehumanized the crew the same way that the corporation was. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't considered like, you know, that might just be like an, an analogy for, for that. And so, like I said, I don't know if you intended that, but that's, that's what I got from it. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. So one of the, one of the threads that kind of runs through Dr. Keller's work as well is this idea of um, creation as being, um, put in relationship with each other. Like the matter was always there. And then this idea of creation that she's dealing with is this idea of a higher power, God, um, putting everything into relationship with each other so that the universe is, is formed in a way that is in conversation, both with itself and with God. And then the problem is that once you start to deny those relationships between other created beings, like whether they're human or animal or something else, then you're starting to deny the inherent, the inherent like worth and value of those things, like as they are in relationship with each other. And you essentially dehumanize them or not even dehumanize if, if you're doing that to something that isn't necessarily human, like you can still harm another living being. But there is an aspect of saying like, I'm going to treat you the way that I want to treat you and not the way that you were created to be. And I'm going to treat you as something that is inherently like less worthy than the worth that has been given to it through those relationships. So um, I think that was part of what made Keller's work really resonate for me when I was looking at these alien movies um, was that all of the evil acts that happen in these films is some form of denial of the inherent worth of somebody else. Like the dehumanization that Wayland yutani does when they say that the crew is just expendable. And then the dehumanization that uh, the prisoners on Fury 161 go through. And just the fact that the alien covers the faces of all of the people that it turns into yeah. <laughs> its own incubators. And then it's it's both like covering your face, covering your identity, and then also essentially like co-opting your identity as like a living, breathing human being and turning you into an incubator for its young. And then you end up dying after it's done with you anyway. It's pretty horrifying. Right. Replaced by a mindless killing drone, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. That's going to keep on carrying on that cycle. Yeah. So there's that cycle. Of, it's, it's not just a 
you do one evil thing and then it's over and done. Like it has repercussions further on down the line that just sort of cascade out of control. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to double back to something you said earlier about um, not, you know, thinking about the alien films in a religious context until a little bit later. But, um, and I think you, you, you know, explicator if that's the correct word it's been a while since grad school um you same <laughs> you you definitely I mean make the case for all six films but one of the things I think I loved about Alien so much and I didn't have the words for it when I was a kid was the cosmic horror aspect of it you know the the Lovecraft of it all like you know just I, I also saw the movie on I saw it on VHS on like the 4th of July at midnight by myself in the amazing <laughs> it was yeah um and the scene where they're in the derelict spacecraft and they find the the space jockey and then they never go back to it and never answer it um like it, it haunted me, you know, it really, um, and that, that's something I sort of loved about cosmic horror. My dad was a preacher. So I always have, you know, um, I'm not a person of faith anymore, but it's sort of baked into who I am and mm -hmm. that cosmic horror sort of is the religious experience inverted, right? It's like the, the Paul on the road to Damascus, but it's something much darker and uglier, uh, oh, getting yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like not, not, um, not a call to like light or to justice or anything, but like a revelation of darkness yeah. and chaos. What are you yeah. going to do with it now? Right. And I think, and in most cases go mad. Right. <laughs> and well, in that idea of Tehomic depths too, like that you, mm -hmm. you actually, by using Keller, you're sort of rehabilitating that cosmic void into something that's actually productive and full of possibility and, not in itself a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's all Keller, um, to be fair. She, uh, the book that she wrote is really like a, a challenge against the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, which um, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's the idea that God created the world out of nothing. Um, and her argument against that is that if you are saying that God created something out of nothing, then you are necessarily like saying that the idea of nothing is an inherently evil and bad one. <laughs> um, and then that also says that the unknown is evil and bad. And then once you, once you take that along with like the specifically the, the Christian religious tradition of being very patriarchal about how knowledge um, and about how religion is used in the world, then you end up saying like everything that is not male or patriarchal or that doesn't uphold that system is also going to be inherently like bad or sinful in some way. So definitely a challenge to that idea. Um, and saying like the unknown isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's scary. Right. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, but there's also just so much more possibility out there when, when you say, instead of looking at something from like any one particular viewpoint saying like there is a plurality of views out there and all of them are good and all of them are valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I loved the, there are several passages. I feel like uh, I'm trying to remember, I know I've got them all highlighted, but of course I don't have it in front of me right this second, but um, about the idea of patriarchal theology needing to flatten everything out and mm -hmm. um, you know, letting sort of, that letting complexity actually exist without needing always to make a value judgment about it mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. being a better way. Although, you know, uh, you also admit this risks chaos in some situations, but, um, yes. but the absolute denial of it too, you know, just 
also invites chaos. So, you know, it's, I guess, more about a balanced approach maybe, or, or just acknowledging it instead of denying it. I don't know. Kind of living in the tension, I think, between those two, like, not fully opposed ideas, but ideas that are definitely at friction with each other, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. What's well, sort of like the plot of Prometheus, or rather the, the way the story unfolds in Prometheus, it's, you know, you go in thinking like, okay, I'm, we're going to find out where these xenomorphs came from. And then you walk and, and I think that's why it wasn't as popular as I, I loved it. And, but, you know, we're talking about when we were discussing it and covenant, you know, how I, I can do the mental gymnastics required to, to get in the mindset of someone who didn't like it. Like, okay. Like you walk in thinking you're, you're, it's a, it's going to be a flat alien prequel and it's yeah. anything but that, <laughs> Oh yeah. you know, it, 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 it promises you or it, it, it teases these these answers, but really just leaves you with more questions. Mm. Um, but yeah, Covenant, I was like, I don't know why. How, if you, I don't know how anyone gets off not enjoying that as an alien movie <laughs> if fans, fan, yeah. <laughs> because it's just about everything. Like in in you you talk about that it you know you make the case that it's the sort of the sinew holding the franchise together, and that uh, you seem to feel that's best for the the origins to remain elusive. Mm. But that's exactly how I felt. It was almost like everything uh, that made the franchise great coalesced into one. And it almost almost felt like a sort of a course correct after Prometheus. I think so. Yeah. But I, I, I enjoyed both films um, for, I guess, the reasons that people didn't enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely like retroactively appreciate Prometheus a lot more yeah. um, after Alien Covenant. Like, I think I get a little bit of what Ridley Scott was trying to do there. Also, the score is just an absolute banger. It's one of my all-time favorite <laughs> movie scores. Um, I, I guess my problem with Prometheus is that it's it's trying to be both mythic and personal at the same time in a way that a lot of these other stories are just purely personal. Um, and for whatever reason, the balance just doesn't quite get there for me. And I think that, uh, like you said, Alien Covenant's a bit of a course correct that I think is a little bit more on my wavelength. Um, so I appreciate that one a little bit more. I feel like that one does balance the the mythic and the personal a little bit better because you've got David on the mythic end and then you've got um, Daniels mm -hmm. um, and, and Tennessee and everything. And they feel to me much more like real people than most of the crew of the Prometheus did. Like there was something to me very not quite write about like the chemistry wasn't there or the writing or something but they didn't feel as real as like the the crew of the Nostromo did or the Covenant to me yeah the movie kind of holds them all at arm's length I think and I'm not sure what's going on with that either but it just it doesn't quite coalesce for me but um yeah so um I guess that that is a, a, a nice uh, segue to sort of a, a couple of geekier questions, which is, do you have a favorite one of these movies? Oh, man. Uh, depends on the day of the week. Um, usually it's Alien or Alien 3 or Alien Covenant at this point. Aliens is pretty high up there, too. Like, it's not a very far distance between all of them, but... Um, it really depends on, on the mood that I'm in. So if you had asked me yesterday, I would have said Alien Covenant, no question. And right now I'm thinking it's probably Alien 3, honestly. <laughs> um, but it really like, half of them I have to be in the mood to watch, I guess. Yeah. So if I had to just pick one where if I had to watch it like every single day for a month, I would probably pick Aliens. Um, but yeah. all three of the other ones that I mentioned, I just love them all. Yeah, um, Aliens, you know, it, it, it's probably the most 
consistently like entertaining it's the most interested of the movies and showing the audience a good time which is very Mm -hmm. much the james cameron mo um (laughs) but in a lot of ways it's the outlier in the franchise and it's interesting because it is most people's favorite um at least most people who aren't like hardcore fans i think you know it tends to be the one people like best and it's Mm -hmm. so tonally different from everything else uh in the franchise which i i appreciate but is also it's uh, i it's interesting. I don't know that I've got a point to make about it, but it's something I think about a lot. It's definitely the most optimistic out of all of them, I think. And maybe that's why people like gravitate towards it a little bit because the rest of the series is so nihilistic. <laughs> Especially Alien 3, which I, I just watched for the first time, you know, in preparation oh, for this, uh, for these podcasts. I, I remember like I had only seen the beginning because I got, and that was something that I don't know if we made it into um, into a sh- an episode or if it was just something that we discussed on our own, but just sort of this obsession with turning these film properties, like these '80s film properties, into um, something that kids could enjoy. Like they had like a Rambo animated series, <laughs> and they had aliens action figures, and I had um, I had the Bishop action figure, and I don't know how I got it. I think just it was on clearance, and my mom picked it up, and. I watched Alien 3 thinking like, okay, I'm going to get the story behind this action figure that I have. And then he's like dead in the first couple of minutes. And so I'm like, okay, never mind. And so I I only watched it for the first time recently. And it was, I mean, it it was for me, I didn't enjoy it as much. I want to rewatch it now that I've read your book. Um, And maybe, and maybe it was the fact that I I watched it right after Aliens Mm. and just the like, absolute 180 that it takes yeah, yeah. is might have been a bit a bit too jarring for me yeah especially the deaths of like hicks and newt like yeah. that really hits hard yeah like after like, you know james cameron did this great job of um you know especially after ripley comes back to earth after almost 60 years and finds out that everything and everyone that she knows is gone including her daughter mm-hmm. and and so she somehow builds this um like replacement family on at Hadley's Hope on uh 226 or 426 and then to have that ripped away from her mm-hmm. and which might have been the best part for me of Resurrection which is a film that I didn't really enjoy I <laughs> there were parts of Alien 3 that I really enjoyed and decisions that were made by I don't know I don't at this point it's hard, hard to tell like <laughs> who wrote what and who directed what but there are definitely parts of Alien 3 that I really enjoyed but Alien Resurrection on the whole I didn't except for the the end scene where she has to kill you know the creature that is birthed by and the newborn. by the queen yeah 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 alien resurrection is the one that i like the least honestly which is funny because i feel like i've built a reputation for myself as being like the person who is like you got to watch alien resurrection (laughs) yeah yeah well okay this here's another this wasn't in my original list but i I think it's worth asking it uh, when you watch these movies do you watch you know for the first four if you've got the box set you've got at least two cuts of each do do you have ones that do you stick to theatricals or do you actually like the extended ones so mostly theatrical for me um with one exception um and that's the uh, assembly cut for alien three um i actually prefer that one um because i feel like you get a little bit better of a sense of place 
and uh, sense of the characters, especially the prisoners. Like, they're all a bunch of dudes with like barcode tattoos and not much else. Like, British guys some with of bald the, heads, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like the first couple of times I, I watched it, like I was a Doctor Who fan and I didn't realize that Paul McGann was in it. And I didn't <laughs> even realize like which one was Paul McGann until I saw the assembly cut, um, which is kind of wild to think because he's a very distinctive performer. Um, no, I, I, like, uh, I like the assembly cut a little bit more. It's definitely on the like sliding scale of like optimistic to nihilistic like it's way over on the nihilistic end especially with the ending where the chestburster doesn't even come out of ripley in that version of the cut but i think that that it almost matters a little bit more because that means that the decision she made was purely her own and not one that was like born just out of desperation you know like she decided she was going to be her own person and to break that cycle regardless of whether or not the alien was about to be born or would have been born in like an hour or two anyway. Um, so yeah, that one I prefer. Um, I actually don't think I've seen the extended cut all the way through of Alien Resurrection. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of it. Like I've watched all of those scenes, but I don't think I've seen all of them put together. I don't remember a whole lot of difference uh, between the two in that one. It's been a long time since I watched the extended of, of Resurrection um, the big difference is that you find out that Walmart bought Wayland Utani, which is just a buck wild detail. <laughs> yeah, I ended up watching the extended cut and saw that, and I'm like, okay, this is. And you said it perfectly in your book, like it's a complete farce. Like yes. this, it's. And I, I discussed that. I, it almost seemed, and it came out like in '97, and this was right after Scream came out. Oh yeah. And so, if, to me, it almost felt sort of like a deconstruction of the franchise mm-hmm. sort of like that was sort of in vogue at the time yeah and and coming from like joss whedon who like his work is sort of like that you know kind of his sort of like yeah. sardonic like you know um view on things yeah but i mean is so you've you've said that it's probably your least favorite is are there any aspects of it that you that you enjoy I mean, I like thinking about it when I'm not actively watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's so much there, there. And it's just for whatever reason, like the individual pieces don't really work for me. Like I do not give a rip about almost any of the characters, which is really tough. Cause like it's a proto firefly crew. You're supposed to kind of root for them. They're, they're upstarts, but I just, I have a hard time caring about most of them. Um, Maybe with the exception of call, even though I don't really love Winona Ryder's performance in that movie, like most of what I love about it is Sigourney Weaver's performance. I think she's doing an incredible job, like playing a character that is Ripley, but wrong in a way that is both like distinctly Ripley and also very much not her. Like she feels dangerous. Um, So I like that. I love that they went wild with a bunch of practical effects for, for most of it. Like, the newborn is incredibly upsetting <laughs> and unsettling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that, that, that brings up a point that we had actually, when we were discussing resurrection recently too, um, Sergio had said almost the same thing about how much, you know, whenever the movie was focused on Ripley, he was really enjoying it. And then whenever it would go back to the other characters, that's sort of when it would lose him again. And it's almost like she sort of, by the way, by virtue of how the story is set up, really the point of view characters are more the proto Firefly characters, and she's sort of the the unknown, the X factor. So she becomes a supporting character in her own movie, 
mm-hmm. uh, which is also sort of my problem with the middle act of the assembly cut of Alien 3 is there's so much of the the chimney sweeps, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that I, I lose sight of her for a while. And um, when I'm watching, you know, one of the one of the first four, I want to see Ripley like that's you know, mm-hmm. she's the best thing in the movie. So yeah. um <laughs> At least in the assembly cut, you get Charles dance. Like, yeah. I feel like I tend to mentally check out after he dies, um, mm-hmm. just because he's such an interesting and compelling character. Um, and it's such a warm performance too. Yeah, he's great. It's like, he, there's there's a generosity there, I think, that you don't really get with a ton of the other alien characters out there. And uh, honestly, like, this is going to be a weird thing to say, but I think my favorite scene in that entire movie is the autopsy scene because it's him being like, I trust you, even though you're not telling me everything. And also I feel really compassionate towards you because this is clearly like a very painful thing for you to be going through. Like he's cutting open a dead child and he's still like the most compassionate person in the room. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said in the book, he covers for her whenever, um, what is uh, the warden uh andrews is that andrews yeah. yeah when andrew shows up and starts interrogating i guess to to sort of uh pull into a broader focus um so you know the book occupies this sort of uh interesting space in the middle of this venn diagram of like academic theological discourse but also sci-fi fandom um and you know you mentioned having a marxist discussion of alien like your first week in grad school so i don't <laughs> You know, um, my experience in grad school, you know, wasn't necessarily academic. I went to an MFA program, you know, where I wrote fiction. So it's a little bit different. And I was kind of wondering, is it a, is it a difficult space to navigate, you know, between mm-hmm. those three spots, I guess, those three poles? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think there's some friction. Um, I also, I went to like an MFA alternate type program, like one of those one-year master's programs where like you're funding a bunch of PhDs and I'm glad that my money went to (laughs) to their stipends. But, um, and I'm also glad of the uh, education I got that I also realized academia was not for me. Um, And it was an unusual program because so many of the preceptors and the professors who were like directly involved with it were so interested in sci-fi. Like I had had a couple of professors in undergrad who were also like sci-fi, like Lord of the Rings people, but I had never really seen people take SF like quite so seriously before. So that was eye-opening for me. Um, for the theology side, I feel like, like I, w- I was raised evangelical. I'm not evangelical anymore, but I still consider myself to be a Christian. And um, theology is one of those fields of study where um, there's also kind of like a suspension, not necessarily of like disbelief, but like a willingness to take something on faith. And I feel like with sci-fi, you also need to be able to suspend disbelief in a certain way. So the two are, even though they can be at odds with each other, I think depending on the viewpoint that you're coming at them from, they can also kind of sing in harmony. Um, And academia was a good way to like sort of bridge that gap because at least you're giving both of them the rigor that they probably deserve. Um, But I don't know, theology is one of those pieces where like I've always been swimming in in those waters. And even if I end up like no longer being religious, I would still always end up seeing the world kind of in that way. so I can't really fully divorce myself from that viewpoint. Um, but I also like to pick things apart and see what makes them tick. And I feel like if you're going to do that, you have to do it from like a pretty rigorous academic or theological lens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and, and maybe, you know, I think where, where you exist as a thinker is exactly in my sweet spot as, uh, you know, uh, an oh, amateur academic as well, <laughs> just because, um, you know, father preacher. So like I have all of this stuff, sort of church of Christ, which isn't quite evangelical, but was pretty strict. It's, um, yeah. And, um, so like a lot of this stuff, um, like it, it, like took, I guess, one holy text and applied it to one of my other holy texts and sort of enhanced both and kind of made me, um, I don't know, it let me see it in a new way, which is always mm. um, a gift, I think. Um, oh, I'm so glad. Um, there, one of the lines that was like that in your book was, um, Waylon calls David perfect, a tribute to his own creative ability and not a judgment of David's own worth. Mm. And when I read that, I just chef kiss because i'm like that <laughs> is that is such a beautiful and poignant and dead on line like we talked about that like this the level of uh, peter whalen's hubris was such that he felt that he could um create perfection and then control it mm. and control is another another theme that you discuss in the book um do you want to expound on that yeah um i think the i think the reason why Wayland calling David like perfect to like the, the reason why it unsettles me so much is that he's he's not even seeing David when he when he says that line either like he's he's just kind of wallpapering over his own creation and saying like I'm the perfect one because I made it yeah. um yeah. and yeah I I think Wayland scares me almost more than the alien does in some ways because there are actually people out there like him like there yeah. are people out there who think that they can shape the world into the way that they want the world to be, which is to say they want to make the world just for them and not for anybody else, um, which is part of the reason why I find things like um, all of the billionaires like launching themselves into space right about now. Like I find that horrifying yeah. because they're taking all of these like valuable resources and time and they're spending it on themselves because they want to be considered great when like if they really wanted to be great they could cede control of all of the stuff they have and give it to the people who need it the most um and it's another form of i guess like that dehumanization as well because it's this holding himself up as like the only person whose opinion matters um and then trying to make other people behave exactly the way that he wants them to. And that just, I, it, it freaks me out so much. And it scares me more, like the more that I think about it too. Yeah. And, and it kind of, it kind of harkens back to the line that Ripley delivers to Burke at, toward the end of Aliens, where he's like, you at least you don't see them fucking each other over for, for a percentage. percentage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and like I, I, in my notes, I wrote like, you know, Ripley achieves class consciousness at this point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And and so when you said that you you, you examined to do a Marcus lens, I'm like, yeah, of course that makes that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. But yeah, and, and like I, I can't help but completely agree that there are people like Peter Whelan in the world that you know it's they're so you know I guess like selfish and and like not self-aware of what you know they can't see like beyond like what they want mm -hmm. yeah. and yeah it, it can be very terrifying and and I think that you know the whole idea of science fiction is sort of like this speculative fiction that you know this is what this is what is to be this is what can be mm -hmm. and 
Alien, this, this franchise is so nihilistic because we see what can be and we're like, oh, this is just an extrapolation of like what we have right now, mm-hmm. like just, you know, 50, 100, 200 years into the future. Yeah. yeah. And it just seems <laughs> more time goes on. Um, and that, you know, that same idea of control, of course, plays out with David and Covenant, you know, where mm-hmm. um, I, he, you know, one of my favorite lines in the movie, he says, no one understands the lonely perfection of my dreams. Yeah. Um, and I forget who he's talking to or if he's talking to himself, but it's a really, really haunting line. And of course, you know, it's like Wayland made explicit, like without all the pretty dressings because you you know he's literally just making monsters at this point that look like Mm -hmm. monsters um yeah 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 he's both frankenstein and frankenstein's monster at once i love it so much (laughs) it's so great (laughs) um and also just the the flashback scene where he dumps the entire payload on the engineer planet like i remember seeing that in the theater and just like being oh like yeah like it's a gorgeous scene that is absolutely horrifying (laughs) like yeah yeah did you notice the the payload uh deploys kind of like a dna spiral i didn't notice it until i read your book and then i I, same (laughs) yeah same it's like that is that's ridley scott thinking in pictures uh he's so great i love i love the way that he composes stuff on on the screen me too me too Mm -hmm. um so i guess that that that's a good segue into the last question that i had so um like like sergio had already mentioned um you know you the the book makes a really strong case for covenant being sort of the sinew that kind of ties the whole franchise together um and we also discussed, you know, the alien, the xenomorph, whatever you want to call it, its origin sort of remaining elusive. So with all of that said, um, you know, I know originally there was supposed to be a, a sequel to Covenant, but Covenant didn't do very well. And then there was the Disney Fox merger. So yeah. all of that's sort of up in the air right now, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess... Do you, my question is, do you, just from an artistic standpoint, taking the practicals out of it, feel like Ridley Scott has finished telling that story there? Um, or do you feel like it's still incomplete? I mean, it ends on a cliffhanger, but also, you you know, with the, I guess, elliptical nature of the, the films and sort of the cycle that it's gone into by doubling back, like, there's a good case for it not needing to close either that circle. So just kind of curious what your thoughts were. So I don't want him to make another one, but also I kind of do. <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. It, he's done such a good job of being really elliptical about going back. Like um, Prometheus doesn't pl- take place on LV426. It takes place on like LV226 or something like that, or 223 yeah. or, or yeah. whichever the number is. Um like he's not really closing all of the gaps. And I like that he's he's left some room for imagination in, in that storytelling. I kind of hopes that like, I would, I would hope that he would bring in like another romantic poet or even like some additional um, references to like, I don't know, Bram Stoker or something. Like it would be cool if we got vampires in on this <laughs> story as well. Um, we've got Frankenstein. We might as well bring in the vampires too. Um, I also don't really want there to be anything because I do think that the series kind of like closes in on itself really nicely with that cliffhanger. Like that is how Ridley Scott originally wanted to end the original alien really back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So they didn't know how they were going to end the movie back in the seventies when they were first shooting it, they kicked around a bunch of ideas. 
um, and Ridley Scott and um, Sigourney Weaver were both on board with the idea of the alien biting her head off at the end and then making the final transmission in either hers or Dallas's voice. And then Fox said, absolutely not. You cannot do this. <laughs> I mean, we got to really, Cowards. I know, <laughs> like, I don't know if it would be as a, like as big of a cultural thing if it had ended in that way. Um, but also it would have been an incredible movie if they had finished it <laughs> like that. So um, I, I suspect that David making that final transmission and like ending covenant the way that he did was Ridley Scott's way of saying like getting one over on Fox and ending the story the way that he kind of always wanted to. Um, I don't know. I know that he says that he's got more in there, but he's like 83, 84 now. So it's kind of a race against time. And I would love if he does anything else, I would love him to do another alien movie, but I would also be content if it just ended here. Yeah. um, One thing that I, you know, I, I, because we have gotten into a lot of the spinoff materials, the, the, both the old dark horse novels and the newer ones coming out from Titan. um, And the idea of, you know, the xenomorph itself, and even Ridley Scott has talked about this in interviews, how it's sort of, how do you keep that idea fresh? How do you do something interesting with it? How do you do something new? So like, you know, if he's not going to do anything with it, do you feel like, you know, I know Noah Hawley who made Fargo and Legion is supposed to be working on a TV show. And I'm kind of curious about that because I really love Fargo. Um, But yeah, I guess you kind of already answered it. Like, you know, maybe it is best to let it lie at mm-hmm. this point. Yeah, especially because it sounds like they're leaning pretty far into the uh, class warfare angle. And like, you kind of get that already. Like that story has been told in the alien universe. That said, I also haven't seen it. And I don't know much about it. So who knows? It could be incredible. Maybe it'll be my favorite TV show when it comes out. So I don't know. But also I kind of want, to see more stories that are not told under the same IP anymore. Yeah, I feel um, as much as I grew up loving franchises, series, connected worlds, I feel like we've kind of hit a point where um, it's it's monopolizing all of storytelling instead of being like a niche thing. And that's kind of, um, as somebody trying to write original fiction right now, (laughs) that's that's a struggling uh, uphill battle. Um, so yeah, I, mm. I completely agree. Um, which also, I guess, just side question: Have you watched uh, Ridley Scott's *Raised by Wolves*? That TV show he's got? I have not. It was on my radar, and then something else came up, and I just never got around to it. Is hey, it good? I, I haven't watched it yet either. But it, I've heard it on the radar, but something else came up. <laughs> There's too much to watch. Um, but there really is. But I've heard it's very much in the same vein, you know, with androids and everything. So it might be. Uh, Maybe that's the better direction to go for Ridley Scott to keep telling those sorts of stories is towards, you know, his own sort of playground instead of, you know, going back to this Disney thing. Yeah, I mean, he clearly has a lot on his mind. (laughs) Um, And I love that he's telling this story in like increasingly like weird and kind of off-putting ways. (laughs) Me too. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, we want to thank you again so much for joining us. Um, this This has been a pleasure. And is there anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a delight. Um, I 
uh, of course, have the book, um, which can be bought uh, anywhere fine books are sold. If you want signed copies, uh, those are actually also available at Matt Zoller Seitz's web store, MZS World Store. Um, so please, uh, go, if you want signed copies, you can go there. Um, I'm also just around the internet, but especially on Twitter at Dodgy Boffin, uh, which is where you can find me shouting about science fiction <laughs> or uh, whatever essay uh, that I've written. Um, I think the most recent one was actually about The Handmaid's Tale for Think Christian. So I write for Think Christian. I write for Brightwell Dark Room. Um, I podcast occasionally for Think Christian as well. Um, but I mostly just spend my time hollering about <laughs> science fiction and horror. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll definitely include links to um, the to all appropriate sites in the show notes. So definitely check those out. Once again, thank you so much, Sarah Welch Larson, the author of Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. I always have to look at it. It is a mouthful, but <laughs> it's such a... It's, it's a long but very succinct title at the same time. That's a, the the title is thanks to my editor. I always have a hard time remembering <laughs> it myself too. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much and uh, hope to hear from you so soon. Thank you. And that will just about wrap it up for yet another episode of Fandom University. We want to thank Sarah Welch Larson so much for joining us and discussing her book. Once again, it's called Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise. Check out the show notes and we will have links to several different retailers where you can pick up that book. It's if you're into that sort of, you know, scholastic look into the things that you love, like if you're and if you're listening to this podcast, me thinks that you might, I definitely uh, definitely recommend you picking it up. Absolutely. And what I will say is it's scholarly but very approachable. It's it's accessible. accessible. I yes. trust me. I once read this book by a doctor uh, named uh, Paul Farmer. It was called Pathologies of Power: Health, Human Rights, and the New War on the Poor. And it was one of it's for one of my anthropology classes. And it was such an engaging read. I enjoyed it so much that when my professor brought in like several other books, like from her personal collection that we could like that we could take home to read, uh, one of his one of his other books was one of them. Uh, aids and accusations and i read that and holy fuck man it like it was dense like so dense and it wasn't until the very end when like in his acknowledgments that he like thanks someone for helping turn his doctoral thesis into a book and i'm like holy <laughs> shit that's what i just read oh my god uh it was fun it was like it was it was it it was you know such an engaging an interesting read but it was so dense and like, you know, so it, I, you know, I come to appreciate when someone can write at that academic level, but still make it accessible. Absolutely. And Sarah's book is 100% that it's very approachable. It's very digestible. And uh, she is a much smarter person than I could ever hope to be. This is, I mean, I, if, if we could have someone of her caliber, like an interview for every arc like that's I, I could just like sort of like you know lean on that into like when I tell people to listen to our show exactly yeah thank you Sarah for lending us some credibility thank you so much um once again we want to plug our giveaway uh we're gonna get people to listen to our show by having smart people on there and by giving away free shit <laughs> if you want to get a free copy of the book the art of alien Ar isolation or a alien rpg starter set from free league games follow us on twitter at fandom you podcast hashtag fandom you podcast send out a tweet 
and you'll be automatically entered one entry per Twitter handle. And once again, we will be drawing a two winners on July 31st. That winner could be you. Uh, check out our social media links. We'll have a link to all that in the show notes. If you want to check it out anyway, you can go to linktree forward slash fandom you podcast, basically any sort of social media we're fandom you podcast. You'll be able to find us if we're on it. Uh, once again, thank you so much to Ashley O for the amazing voiceover work again, lending credibility to our, you know, dime store ball antics. <laughs> exactly. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with, we'll be you know, discussing more alien stuff. We'll be discussing the alien RPG with some friends. We'll be discussing alien novels with some friends. We'll be discussing the future of the franchise with some friends. So be on the lookout for that. Once again, my name is Sergio. And mine is Sean. Be kind to yourself and to others.